0: For 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is your host, Nick Bilton. So I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you believe, the listener, that America is more divided today than it ever has been before, of course, beyond the Civil War. But that's actually not true. There was a point when the country was more tumultuous, more divided, and even more embroiled in chaos, and that was in 1968. In the first few months of 1968 alone, the country was at war in Vietnam. President Johnson said he would not run for re-election, which of course threw the Democratic Party into complete tumult and chaos – Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. There was racial disturbances and protests all across the country. And to top it all off, Robert Kennedy, the brother of JFK, was assassinated right here in Los Angeles while he was running for president. Unlike JFK's assassination, it seemed like this was an open and shut case, the murder of RFK. That one man with one gun killed Robert Kennedy. But my guests today, Mark Smerling and Zach Stewart-Pontier, the team behind the Jinx documentary and the podcast Crime Town, are here today to tell us that there could be something more to the murder of RFK. There could have actually been a big government conspiracy to kill Robert Kennedy involving mind control, a woman in a polka dot dress, and a massive police cover-up. Before Mark and Zach join me on the show today, I'm going to do a little inside, inside, inside the hive and invite Abby Tracy onto the show for a quick 15-minute discussion about Brett Kavanaugh, Donald Trump's pick for the Supreme Court. Abby is going to tell us if Kavanaugh is going to try to overturn Roe v.ersus Wade, if all of this swirling chaos around the Democratic Party, if they can actually do anything to stop him from becoming the Supreme Court nominee, and if he does Will he flip the court completely to the right for the next 20, 30 years? So without further ado, let's jump right in. Abby, welcome back to Inside the Hive. Actually, it's Inside, Inside, Inside the Hive. (laughs) Um, Let's jump right in with the Supreme Court nauseousness. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh, can you give us, like, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Should we be terrified? Is Roe versus Wade going to get overturned? like what's going on here?
1: Well, he's certainly a conservative. So, and right now it really looks like he's going to clear the Senate, no real problem. Uh, even some of those senators, you know, Senator Collins, Senator Murkowski, and some democratic senators actually, you know, Joe Manchins and people like that. Um, they've really signaled that they aren't going to oppose him and that they're going to let him sort of sail through. Um, so we're kind of at that place where it's almost inevitable that this guy's going to land up on the court. Um, Um, And one of the interesting things is he certainly wasn't of the, you know, top three or four candidates that Trump floated at the very end. He certainly wasn't, you know, the furthest to the right when it came to um, abortion rights and Roe v. Wade. But uh, many still believe that he will, you know, sort of fall into line with, you know, traditional conservative judges that are on the court. So it's definitely not great um and he's certainly not Merrick Garland or anything like that. Um but yeah, we're cert- we're looking at a uh, extreme possibility that he will, you know, fill that ninth seat.
0: So okay, so he is a conservative, but there are, you know, I've been reading lots of articles, some people say he's a really good guy, that there was a story about a guy who to, uh, play soccer with his, their kids play soccer together and he's a great soccer coach dad and all these different things and uh and he sounds he sounds like a nice guy sure but mm-hmm. but you know what is his philosophy on rovery wade like is he should people be worried that he will overturn it and it will go down to the states and that some states will make it completely illegal and so on or is it just kind of TBD at this point? And then also, are there other issues that, you know, we could see uh, massively affected by him on the court? For example, I know the NRA um, has been staunchly behind him uh, mm-hmm. because they believe that he is incredibly pro-Second Amendment Um and are there other things that we should know about?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so on your NRA point, absolutely. He's incredibly um to the far right in terms of in terms of gun rights. Um, and back to kind of like the Roe v. Wade thing, it's kind of tough because he doesn't have too many rulings that sort of deal with this issue. Um, sort of the most notable one is the recent uh, case involving the undocumented uh, teen. Uh, who was seeking an abortion, and he actually dissented in that case. So he ruled against her getting the abortion. But sort of the interesting thing about his his dissension in that case was it was extremely narrow, and his argument wasn't so much that this individual, you know, shouldn't have access to an abortion, but he sort of raised issue with the timing of it, you know, using that kind of code word, like, on-demand abortion type of language. So one of the interesting things is, on that ruling, he got at, well. Of course, he got attacked. You know, on the left by people that thought, um, you know, this individual should absolutely have access to an abortion. But then on the right, he was also attacked by conservatives who said he didn't go far enough in his ruling. You know, there were a lot of folks that said, you know, this individual shouldn't even have any sort of access, like timing be damned. Um, So that's kind of one of those things. And I think that's an overarching pattern that you do actually see in a lot of his rulings, in that, you know, they're kind of these narrow things, like very specific cases. So that case in particular, you know, you're dealing with an undocumented teen who's seeking an abortion. Like, that's a very unique case. And it's sort of hard to extrapolate from that, you know, where he stands more broadly on the law. There have been other times where he's ruled, but he's said, he sort of framed it in Roe v. Wade, is the law at that point, just because, you know, he wasn't on the Supreme Court. This was when he was in a lower court. So that is sort of what you go with. And that's the ruling that you stick to. Um, So that's kind of where he falls on that. I think one of the interesting things that I've heard from a bunch of my legal sources who I've spoken with, well, for starters, kind of to your point, everybody's like, great guy, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, um, very well qualified for the post. Nobody thinks he's like a Judge Jeanine or anything, you know, not a hack or anything like that. But um, one of the interesting things that they do kind of talk about is that it's sort of hard to t- take away from his rulings, like how he will rule on the court. Um, that said, one of the most interesting things, and I actually wrote an article this week about this, is th- Getting a lot of play around this 2009 Minnesota Law Review article that he wrote, wherein he made the argument that a president shouldn't be subject to investigations or uh, indictments while they're in office, and that's really obviously, you know, kind of a critical uh, sort of. But
0: issue wasn't right he? Now. W- wasn't he a? Uh, he was on the Ken Starr committee that went after clinton so isn't that antithetical to that point and then at the same time is that part of the reason why trump maybe picked him
1: yeah well the interesting thing is yes he was absolutely on the ken star um on the ken Starr investigation and he was one of the people urging Starr to go harder on clinton and said like we shouldn't cut him any slack on the interview and really like sought to get uh them to ask really explicit questions about President Clinton and his relationship with Monica Lewinsky Um, to a kind of creepy degree almost. Ultimately, he said, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this, I believe. But the interesting thing is, is then he served in the Bush White House. And his takeaway in this 2009 Law Review article was that, hey, like, Ken Starr and all the investigators in that probe, you know, followed the statute that was on the books, but after working in the White House under Bush, I realized that, you know, with everything a president has going on and all the pressures that are on them, you know, asking them to sit through investigations and deal with this huge distraction is just too much. So his argument is they should be able to defer it. So and he even proposed like extending the statute of limitations. So I think like the interesting thing is over the past week, a lot of people have kind of freaked out about this. They're like, oh, this guy is only being put on the court to give Donald Trump a free pass, like a get out of jail free card. If he's on the court, Trump will never see, you know, never really have the screws put to him in terms of the Mueller investigation. But he well, explicitly that's, does uh, say, like, no, the president's not above the law. It's basically, yeah, they'll face the law later.
0: That's actually, it seems like that would be a, a bad play by Trump if, if the if the you know there's so many suits against him right now. If they were, even if the Mueller stuff was pushed off, and let's just say, you know, hypothetically, a Democrat wins in the next election and they go after Trump that democrats not pardoning Trump in the same way that Trump would pardon Trump right so right. maybe maybe he maybe he didn't see that mm-hmm. before he decided <laughs> to nominate him one of the questions that i keep getting asked and i'm curious what your answer is to this is that even let's just say that the the democrats did uh did decide all right we're not going to back this guy we're not going to let him Get into into the Supreme Court. Could they actually stop it, or is it just there's nothing that they can do?
1: No, they there's nothing that they can really do at all in terms of um, blocking him without any help from Republicans. You know, they don't have the majority. The filibuster is gone after Gorsuch. So they really have very few tools in their toolbox. Um, So for them, you know, it really came down to Republicans and whether some of those individuals on the fence, whether it was Collins or Murkowski, who, you know, are very into women's rights and reproductive health and have, you know, they ruled against, for instance, the repeal of the Affordable Care Act um, sort of on those grounds. And so really, there, any hope of kind of blocking Kavanaugh hinged on them. And what they can do is they can, use, you know, sort of uh, clog up the gears of the sentence. And they can make, as one person put it to me, they can make life really annoying for everybody, including themselves, for a long time. But in terms of, like, actually blocking this, they, you know, they can't, uh, which is But real- could they make
0: it annoying—could they make it life so annoying— uh- up to November, so that they, if they, if by some chance the Democrats get the their seats back, that they could then say no.
1: No, it wouldn't be that. It's it'd be more like procedural procedural annoyances and things like that, but nothing that can really um, effectively delay this. And I I think one of the interesting things that um, actually a Republican Senate aide told me shortly after. Uh, Kennedy announced his retirement was this idea that nothing unites Republicans and Republican lawmakers more than judges. So this idea that, you know, they're um, pretty unified in terms of getting this guy through and you already have them sort of signaling, hey, like the average time it takes to, you know, get a Supreme Court judge confirmed is like 66, 67 days or something. Obviously, they're taking out Merrick Garland, who's an outlier in that uh, statistic there. But so they're really signaling like, no, we're going to get this guy through. We're going to get him through before the midterms. And you guys really, sorry, but this is it.
0: Speaking of Merrick Garland, um, the thing that, you know, of course, Mitch McConnell did by refusing to even, you know, Meet with him, uh, I think, goes down in history as one of Mitch McConnell's most slimy, disgusting things. And he has a, yeah. a long list Pretty of slimy, uncool. disgusting things he's done. <laughs> are, are there going to ever be any repercussions for those actions? Or is he just going to be slimy and disgusting until he retires and that's it?
1: No, there's really nothing. You know, if there were, was going to be anything, it already would have happened. And I think one of the interesting things actually about that is so during the Kennedy, um, you know, right after Kennedy announced his retirements, you really saw Democrats spring into gear, kind of saying, oh, well, we should, you guys should follow the precedent you set with the Garland nomination and, you know, that it's an election year, it's the midterms coming up, like, we have to wait until the American public speaks on who should be in the Senate. And I think one of the really interesting things that happened was after, as this was all going on, I reached out to Trent Lott, who was the Senate majority leader, a Republican Senate majority leader before Mitch McConnell, and I think kind of a um, mentor to McConnell in a, in a way. And I was like, how is this any different? Sort of like, what? how do you push back on this argument that it's also an election year? And he was incredibly blunt in his response, and he just said... The argument is it's not a presidential election year. So they're really sort of operating on, oh, midterms don't matter. All that matters is whether it's presidential election year or not. So sort of like this idea that the president is the one who picks the nominees and sort of, you know, that power should be left to them and we should wait till the American public uh, sort of responds to that. Like leaving out of the equation the fact that the Senate has to confirm Supreme Court justices. So it's like a really kind of interesting way that they're – Kind of threading this argument of theirs.
0: I I love the the Republicans' ability to rewrite the rules in the middle of the game always, and for the Democrats to be so pathetic that they don't do anything to stop it from happening. Yeah. Um, it's you know gerrymandering, Supreme Court. I mean, it's just it's just ridiculous. Okay, so last couple of questions yes. before we get to my next interview about about RFK. Um, what is you know we we're seeing this kind of tied not switch but come in uh in the democratic party because people are so fed up with the democratic leadership and we saw it with cortez winning Mm -hmm. in new york um a couple weeks ago and one thing that's really fascinating from the perspective of of looking at this from kind of like a ten thousand foot view is that before cortez won Uh, And for people that haven't been following, she is, you know, she beat a, how many terms had had, uh, um, the the guy been, the congressman been in? I mean, it was like five terms or something like that. Yeah, she'd been Uh, there like 20 years. 20 years, uh, came out of nowhere. She's incredible. Um, You should check her out. Uh, But one of the things that that was so fascinating to watch from the side is that, Pre-Cortez winning, everyone was, you know, let's back Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and, and the people we've backed for decades and years. And then afterwards, it seems like there was kind of this tide shift of like, we've got to get rid of Pelosi and people like that because they haven't changed the damn thing and they're not going to and we need new blood and people like Cortez are going to be, um, are going to be those people. Do you think that there is a chance that we could see a... Uh, a positive destruction in the Democratic Party that is so well needed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the interesting things that you've seen in sort of this new crop of candidates is that the majority of them, are, or many of them at least, have pledged that if if they are elected, that they won't back Pelosi and sort of the current leadership structure that's in place. Um, and I think there's definitely something to be powerful there. I think when we look at the, um, you know, the AOC election victory. A lot of people, you know, they're like, oh, look how far left the party's moving. Um, they're like, you know, she's a democratic socialist. They're like, you know, that won't work everywhere. That's not how you're going to win 2020. But I think one of the interesting things is it's you have to sort of view this, take a step back and view it in terms of, you know, we've also seen Connor Lamb get elected and individuals like that who are, you know, much more um, moderate or more toward the center. And I think the actual sort of line connecting these people is that they're young and that they're new blood and that they're new faces. And I think, you know, there is sort of a lot of frustration within the Democratic Party with the kind of, you know, uh, sort of static nature of it. You know, they don't, they want to see things shaken up. They want to see these new faces. They want new blood. And it's, and I think that is kind of the trend to pay attention to, not, you know, that, Uh, she was a democratic socialist or something like that. I think it's more about, you know, new people who you think are actually going to change the game in Washington.
0: All right, so last question. Back to the Supreme Court, and then we'll let you get back to your writing. Um, (laughs) The Chief Justice, John Roberts, uh, when he was uh, assigned to the court, we all assumed, I remember assuming that he was going to be incredibly conservative, even maybe as much as Thomas. uh, And he has, in some instances, been not conservative um, and has, has voted kind of down the middle. He's still with a conservative bent and so on. Mm -hmm. If, if, um, and it seems that, you know, I mean, you see this in, if you get into a discussion with anyone about a topic, and, uh, it, you know, you kind of, your side can change, even with judge, justices and judges, your side can change based on the arguments that other people make. And uh, and this, of course, we all know happens on the Supreme Court too. And there's, you know, there, there's some horse playing going on where the, there's trades and things like that. Do you think that when we get another conservative justice uh, on the court, uh, one that is going to be more conservative in a lot of these liberal issues, uh, like abortion and gun rights and so on, than Kennedy was. Do you think that there's a world where some of these conservative judges kind of come more to the center, and maybe even Chief Justice Roberts becomes a little bit more liberal, especially in a Roe v. Wade uh, or something like that?
1: Yeah, I actually had an interesting conversation on this exact topic um, with a constitutional law professor who was actually at like the Gorsuch um, confirmation hearing. And he... And... <laughs> okay. He
0: we, was that a was that was that a Chief Justice Roberts calling you? Yeah, real that was quick he. Then, was, he
1: heard his name. Um, <laughs> Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Um yeah. But no, I, I actually had a conversation with somebody about this recently, and sort of you know what could happen with the you know the departure of Kennedy, because obviously, as everybody um, likely is aware of, is Kennedy ended up being you know kind of a critical swing vote, especially on social issues like gay gay rights and um, abortion and Um, kind of uh, a lot of it having to do with sort of individual privacy and things of that nature. But I was talking to somebody, and they made the point that um, John Roberts doesn't love to see, you know, sweeping social changes being made with rulings. So sort of this idea that they presented to me was, you know, he he would be unlikely to allow – a full frontal attack on Roe v. Wade. So you would never probably want to see it fully overturned, but could kind of see it being, you know, um, attacked at the margins a little bit. So whether that's, you know, changing... uh, when it's legal to have your abortion. So, you know, changing, saying like, oh, after 20 weeks or something like that, that it's illegal. But so kind of this idea that, you know, he will likely serve a bit as a bulwark against, you know, major changes such as overturning Roe v. Wade or things of that nature. Um, And I do think it is important to some of these folks uh, as to what public opinion is. And uh, despite... Um, kind of the idea that it's two parties. Like, if you're a Republican, like, you're absolutely opposed to abortion. And if you're a Democrat, um, you're totally for uh, women's right to choose. And I think one of the interesting things is, like, within both parties, you know, there's a little bit, you know, there are Democrats that oppose abortion and there are Republicans that are pro-choice. And I think when you have a justice like John Roberts, who kind of sees himself as kind of a guard against these major, major changes, you likely will see that presented in his, um, in his rulings to come, I think, especially, you know, considering that the weight of the court is likely going to change with the addition of Kavanaugh if he's officially confirmed. <laughs>
0: All right, well, on that note, all I do every night now as I go to bed is I look up in the skies and I pray to Ruth Ginsburg yep. that she makes it through the night. Yeah,
1: keep working the next, out, Ruth, right? For the
0: next... For the next 40 years until Trump is no longer president. Um, (laughs) RBG. Thank you so much. Of course. RBG. Thanks, Nick. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for chatting today. Uh, Stay tuned. Up next, we have a fascinating interview with the guys behind the RFK tapes.
2: You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: So last year, I bought my wife some perfume and was later horrified to find out the things that they put in the stuff. They have synthetic colors, parabens to prevent bacteria, all these different kinds of plastics and chemicals. It's really nasty stuff that you're putting on your skin. But there's now a new fragrance company that does absolutely none of that. It's a company that's bringing the feeling back into fragrances and it's called Fleur. So Fleur is accessible to anyone. It's like having a friend who knows a lot about fragrances and it's not only good for you and your skin, but also for the earth. There's no questionable ingredients. It's eco conscious packaging. It's really, really cool because you can actually tell which fragrance is right for you directly from their website. No, they did not invent smell You will have to go to the website to see what I'm talking about, but trust me, it's very cool. Their scents are all gender-free, and the best part is Fleur is completely transparent as a fragrance company. They tell you every ingredient in their perfumes and why it's there. There's no secrets, no nasty ingredients, and no bullshit. And Fleur scents are really cool incorporating ingredients like fig, white flowers, Hazelnut, sandalwood. You really have to check out the site to see what I'm talking about. So go to flur.com, that's P-H-L-U-R.com today and use the promo code HIVE, which of course is H-I-V-E, and you can get 20% off your custom FLUR sample set. Pick three cents to try and just check it out. It's amazing. Once again, the promo code is HIVE, H-I-V-E, and the website is flur.com to try Three fragrances of your choice at 20% off. P-H-L-U-R dot com.
2: My name's Sergeant Jordan. This is Rampart uh, Detectives. Uh, What is your name, sir?
3: No comment.
0: Thanks so much for joining me today. Welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Mark, by the way, the older guy. uh, And I'm Zach. (laughs)
0: Uh, the, the younger guy. I th- I'm probably somewhere <laughs> in the middle guy. Uh, I'm Nick. Um, so let's, let's jump right in. I, uh, I have a lot of questions, but for the people listening who don't know anything about anything, can one of you guys give us just a brief synopsis of who RFK was and how you ended up doing this incredible documentary podcasty thing that I can't stop listening to?
2: Sure. Well, thanks for the compliment. Um, the, uh, so Robert Kennedy was a senator from New York, and in 1968, he was running for president. Um, he's JFK's younger brother, and he also was attorney general for, for John F. Kennedy and very involved in, in those campaigns. Um, and he was assassinated on June 5th, 1968, in the pantry of the Ambassador Hotel. Um, Sirhan Sirhan was caught at the scene with a gun, and basically, the case is, has been perceived for many years as open and shut. This guy did it. Not a lot, not a lot of mystery. And um, I think what struck me about the, the case in, from the very beginning is that the police recorded just about everything. And so there was this just incredible amount of material, cassette tapes, and different things that uh, came out of the California State Archives and other places and it really it really allows you to be a fly on the wall um, from the first moment of the investigation when Sirhan Sirhan is in the police interrogation room and won't even reveal his name all the way through like m- many of the diff- various times this case has been brought back up it, it gets a lot of coverage so there was just an incredible amount of material
0: and the cops—they recorded everything because there was still such a mystery around JFK's shooting. Is that partially why?
2: I think that was a part of it. I also think that it's—it was standard at that time to to make recordings of 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 in these interviews. Um, they knew. They certainly knew it was a big case, and they certainly knew about the questions. No, I think that it's more erased. pointed
3: than that, right? I mean, they were trying to subvert any chance of a conspiracy, I think, because there was so much conspiracy swirling around the JFK assassination because things happened very quickly and nothing was recorded. And, you know, they they decided on this one pretty early on that they were going to clean up the uh, witness testimony in a way that, that, you know, by recording it, by making sure that they were being transparent. It didn't end up that they were transparent, but they started out in a good place.
0: The thing I find so fascinating about this era, 1968 specifically that year, is is just it's there's 82 days where it just seems like the world shakes. It's, you've got President Johnson who de- declines to run for a second term. You have Martin Luther King Jr. who's been assassinated. You have Robert Kennedy who's been assassinated. There's racial disturbance. It's, it's essentially kind of the most chaotic period of time since the Civil War. Do you think when you kind of – with all the research that you've done – uh, that this was this was an, a period, and, and RFK's assassination was kind of a period that changed everything?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there's been a couple times in our history, uh, the Vietnam War, you know, Kent State, war protests, civil rights movement, where the country became so divided... That you know things got kind of crazy, and uh, people today are talking about a divided country. I think that's what attracted me to the subject matter as well. Is we live in a very divided time now, and you see conspiracies sort of popping up left and right. And um, certainly, from a from a bird's eye perspective, conspiracies sort of feed on division and feed on people's suspicions that the other side is doing nefarious things. And, uh, and they are born out of conflict and, and a divided nation. So, yeah, I think that that time is, is unique in American history. Do, and, and people today, you, you know, they're like, well, we live in a divided time. But back then, people were getting killed. I mean, one thing that, yeah, was, that Zach left out was that RFK was running for president. He just won the California Democratic uh, nomination. So, you know, he was killed on the cusp of, of a career that could have changed everything. He was, he, was, you know, he was definitely a guy who had gone from being, working alongside Eugene McCarthy during the Red Scare to some sort of epiphany during, uh, during the, his, his brother's assassination to working side by side with civil rights advocates and, and really advocating for the poor and, and immigrants. It's amazing when you listen to his, his, him speak about
2: those times how, how relevant it feels to today.
0: Well, that's the thing that for, for me was so fascinating. I kind of went down the internet rabbit hole and was watching speeches and listening to audio and, and reading transcripts and things. And, and you could literally take those speeches and put them to today and they would be just 100% apt. You wouldn't have to change a word. And it, it's so fascinating to see the, the relationship between 68 and today. Um, do you think that we when you kind of look at uh the story of RFK and where we are today do you think that that there are massive parallels or is it just two different points in time
2: I think you can you can certainly draw parallels I mean I think it's it's pretty interesting to me that uh, Robert Kennedy was speaking for what he calls a forgotten working class at that time mm-hmm. it's pretty interesting to hear that sort of reverberation um nowadays with with President Trump uh speaking for those people and but at the same time like he also is really when he speaks about immigrants he's incredibly thoughtful and powerful and um supportive and you don't feel that from president trump so it's i find it there there isn't like a straight line i think i'm I'm impressed
0: that you can say the words president trump without gagging it's 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 pretty (laughs) impressive i still have a really hard time putting those two words together you can't see Um, my face right now but (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah. I, would add, I would add one thing to that. I would say that, yep. you know, in 1968, a lot of Americans of different colors and, you know, a lot of Americans from different classes were trying to figure out where they, where they were in society. Um, and just like today, I, I feel like the birth of Trump, the birth of this conservative movement is a lot about the same issues. That there are certain people in the, our society who are feeling displaced, who feel entitled to um, certain you know certain respect in our society or but, positions in our society. But isn't
0: it isn't it the the difference though is that in 68 the people who would have voted for Hillary today or in 2016 were the ones who were felt displaced versus today it's the opposite side Yeah that's is, true that right yeah, that's that's what <laughs> but I But remember trying.
3: Nixon wasn't far after you know I mean there was a conservative yeah. backlash just like we're feeling now
0: well, so, uh, so I have a million questions about the assassination and Sirhan Sirhan and all the conspiracy theories, uh, but I just want to jump a little bit more into, into Robert Kennedy before we get to those. So it, from my perspective, and I haven't done a ton of research, I've just you know listened to the podcast and so on, he seemed like an incredible person. Yeah, is that correct? Is that I mean,
3: yeah, I think what makes him incredible is he had this incredible ability to change his mind about big issues. He was he could he was one of the few politicians who was willing to say I was wrong about that. And I think at that time in our history, we were looking for some some level of honesty and transparency. And he seemed extremely honest and transparent.
2: Yeah, I mean it was when he talks about wanting to end the war in Vietnam as an example. I mean, he was incredibly invested and was literally in the room when they were planning different aspects of that war. So, you could imagine politicians nowadays are are so afraid to to say, "Oh, I might have been wrong about that" or "I changed my mind" or I you know, and and he he wasn't.
0: Hmm. Okay, so so let's go to to the night that he is shot. It's uh Los Angeles um, can you walk us through that moment, and uh, and then how we, of course, get to the point where we find out that there may be some sort of conspiracy behind who actually shot RFK?
2: Sure. Um, so Robert Kennedy had they had announced the winner. It was it was election day in the California primary, and he had been. Um, he would sort of been laying low. Um, most of the work on the campaign had had been over, you know, obviously, and it was uh, the volunteers were getting people out to vote and all that. And he was um, hanging out with his family all day, and then went to the Ambassador Hotel to deliver his victory speech um, shortly after midnight. And um, you know, you hear you hear him give his his speech, and as he's leaving to go to another press uh, conference, they take him through uh, the hotel kitchen pantry. Um, and Sirhan Sirhan steps out with a gun, and um, you know his his entourage included George Plimpton, Rafer Johnson, uh, Rosie Greer, um, and these are the these are the people who sort of spring into action and wrestle the the gun away from Sirhan Sirhan.
0: So what immediately they get the gun from Sirhan Sirhan, and then they they think, okay, this is an open and shut case, but when when I start reading more about it, it turns out that there were thirteen bullet holes. is that correct? and there was only eight slots in sirhan Sirhan's gun uh There were things that came up in the aut- autopsy report as you you guys detail in the podcast where um the the, it, it, the autopsy says that the bullet had hit him from just a you know point blank range just mere inches away whereas Sir Han Sirhan was a few feet away don't the cops question that at all? Or is it just like, okay, well we found the guy with the gun.
2: That's who did it. Um, well, well, so just to take those kind of questions one at a time, there's certainly, uh, there's some problems with the case on, on, on a closer look. And, and there's certainly some questions that come up. The first of the first of which is a problem between the eyewitness testimony and the autopsy. Um, the the bullets. The autopsy says the bullets came were fired at point blank range from one to three inches away from Kennedy, from behind Kennedy. And everybody says that Sirhan Sirhan was three to six feet away from Kennedy and standing in front of him. Um, and then there's a bullet count. Question, um, which is that Sirhan Sirhan's Sir gun uh, holds eight bullets. There's four bullets that go uh, into Kennedy. Uh, three of them hit him, and one goes through his jacket. And there are five victims that their bullet holes pulled out of their bodies. Um, so right there, that's already. And then there's sort also the, some bullet holes in
0: the in the in and, the door frame too.
2: And then there's some questions. There's some photographs of bullets of potential. Bullets hole, bullet holes in the door frame. Which so which when you f- the conspiracy, yeah. the conspiracy people would would say that um, that is proof of a se- uh, that a second gun is firing.
0: And the non-conspiracy people would say, "Oh, well, maybe the bullet passed through someone and hit the door frame,
2: or maybe they're not bullets. Maybe those are mislabeled, or you know, you know, it's very hard in a chaotic scene to really understand like how bullets travel."
3: Yeah, and this. Sort of story because of the 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 desire by the police in their investigation to make things as as clear as possible, certain things become unclear. You know, uh, witness testimony becomes unclear whether it's reliable, and you know things like actual forensic evidence, ballistics evidence, become unclear because they ended up throwing those uh, those those door jams away and. They're lost to time, so nobody really gets a good look at them.
2: Yeah, they're booked into evidence. the door frames are booked into evidence that night, and um, about shortly after Sirhan's um, trial uh, bef- while he's appealing, um, a bunch of evidence is destroyed. Hmm. Why and why was the evidence destroyed? Was it well, accidental, or The cops said that there wasn't a lot of room um, in the in the evidence locker.
3: And it wasn't part of the original trial, so it never came up in trial, so the police said it wasn't evidence in the trial, so it wasn't evidence of the crime, you know. But ultimately, you know, I think there's probably a desire to just keep things simple.
0: So when you look at this case, in you, you, you the way you two both approached it, did you think, when you first heard about this, did you think, oh, this is just one of those silly conspiracy theories, you know, like an Alex Jones type thing? Or were you immediately like, hey, something's not right here? And and by the end of it, what was your conclusion to those questions, too?
2: Well, I had a very personal uh, relationship with this case in a, in a weird roundabout way. I'd heard an early documentary that um, my co-host Bill Claver had made uh, in the 90s. Um, and so I, I, I knew about this for a long time, but I hadn't really dug in on it. Um and, uh, yeah, I think you'll have to wait to see how, how
3: <laughs> the conclusion that we, uh, that we come to. <laughs> I mean, it's you um, know, just from doing yeah. crime and thinking about conspiracies. This is really our first cons- dive into conspiracies. They're not that far apart. You know, when you look at complicated crimes, you often find out that the police try to fix the evidence to the benefit of their case. And the defense does the same. And, you know, there once the initial witness testimony is taken and initial observations are done, everything becomes edited in a way. And um, so there's a question of whether is this, are these bullet holes valid? Are they real bullet holes? If they are, was there another gun? Or were they nail holes or something else? It's impossible to tell because the police cleaned up the evidence in a way that promoted their view of the case.
0: So you, the, so you guys have done uh, a number of crime-related documentaries and podcasts now, um, and is your feeling that, you know, when you look at witness testimony, that it is blurred, it is inaccurate, it is sometimes colored by the police or colored by someone's views, or is this just kind of an outlier?
3: Well, I think that um witness testimony has proven over and over again just in the last, you know, more so in the last 5-6 years than than ever before to be consistently inaccurate in certain cases that are politicized or there the stakes are very high. Because what happens is, you know, I always try to go back to the initial statement because that's the purest the purest witness statement. But over time mm. People start to, I mean, this has been done in, in psychological studies, P- people start to change their stories to meet, to benefit other people. They t- start to want to please other people. And, you know, so these stories, uh, these they change over time. So by the time you get to trial, which usually in a criminal case can be two years, and a big one can be two years, three years after the initial indictments, um, everybody's been cleaning up the paths of the witnesses and cleaning up the paths of the of the evidence, and you have to be very objective to every piece of evidence, and you have to demand to go back to the source and see how things have changed. You just can't take everything at face value.
0: Okay, so let's get to Sirhan Sirhan. He is the alleged shooter, um, and as you start the show, you talk about, you know, you play the recording of, of him refusing to talk. Uh, and then, of course, we get to the point where you bring up the fact that he may have been hypnotized or mind-controlled. Um, tell us, tell us that, that story of that progression.
2: So Sirhan Serhan is captured at the scene with a, with a gun, and he's taken to the LAPD Rampart Division, and he's questioned. And he doesn't say a lot. Um, and actually, the first thing that starts to emerge is a political motive. Um, before any talk of, of hypno programming, um, he claims not to remember the crime, he claims not to understand why he, he committed the crime. Um, and gradually over the course of and we did a whole episode with these therapy sessions between um, the court, the the psychiatrists on on the for the prosecution and the defense spent days with Sirhan trying to to get him to remember and trying to understand um, why he had done this and and what starts to emerge is um, he's kind of grasping for an explanation and um Serhan's grasping Sir Han's, for an explanation everybody is but yes even Serhan is and um, he i th- you know i think he makes a decision to um, doesn't he is, is terrified that people are going to think he's uh, mentally ill. Um, and he comes to this conclusion that was certainly you see the seeds of that he was a political assassin and that this was politically motivated because of some claims that Bobby, some, because of some of the statements that Senator Kennedy made about sending um, jets to Israel. And um, Sirhan Sirhan was born in, in Jerusalem so he's Palestinian. He's, he's Palestinian
0: Palestinian yeah so so but he uh, when you get to the point where you start to to unveil that there's this kind of mind manipulation thing going on uh there's there are points where you, i i can see both sides of it where you're like okay well this makes total sense uh you know the CIA was doing all sorts of crazy shit back then you know they were giving drugs to, I mean, there's so many stories, right? You know, in in the Vietnam War, where they're giving like LSD to soldiers to see if they fight better. There's like doing these time machine things, but you don't know what's real and what's not. And do you kind of get the sense as you're, as you're researching this, uh, that this could be real?
2: We're doing, a whole, we're doing a whole episode of, of, on uh, mind control, and um, you're going to hear from some, some people that examined Sirhan, and you're going to hear their take on, their take on that. Um, it's certainly f- far-fetched.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that what you have to continue to do in these things, and why the podcast platform is so great for this, and I think this is why we, we've been doing more podcasts and television lately, is you've got to slow the story down to a crawl. And allow the audience hmm. to experience it in the chronology of what happened, rather than retrospectively looking back with all context involved and everybody's opinion involved. So, if you listen to the Sirhan episode where they're hypnotizing him, um, you see the evolution of thought from a guy who's denying he saw he, he he's denying he has any memory of this thing to a political assassin who's doing it for the you know the people who've been persecuted by Israel, the Palestinians in particular. Now, is that change in Sirhan the function of doctors poking around in his brain using hypnotism, uh, and his sort of historical um, experiences? You know, he was watched his brother die in uh, in Jerusalem. Um, He was, you know, he was there during the Six Day War. Um, It was very violent, and and he was just a child. Or is, um, or is it something else? Is it that that was? Something that was identified by people who could manipulate him and hypnotize him to kill Kennedy, you know, you know, it could have been that. But it seems like you have to make a decision for yourself by sort of bathing in the material.
0: One of the things I found really fascinating was the the senator who, the former congressman uh, Lowenthal, is that right? Lowenstein. Um, Lowenstein, sorry. Who? Who was who knew Kennedy, um, who was actually waiting for him to call him the moment he was shot, uh, who was not in any way a conspiracy theorist, uh, who was a traditional congressman, and then became one, became, you know, I guess he self-describes himself as one, and how quickly, you know, you can go down this rabbit hole um, of trying to figure out what's real and what's not. when you I so I've covered I've worked for the New York Times for for many years, I worked for Vanity Fair for many years, I've written uh several books and and I always find I I find it hard to believe a lot of the times when I see just how dysfunctional the government is that there could be these grand conspiracy theories. That is the biggest and,
3: argument against them by the way. <laughs>
0: yeah, I I mean I I wrote the book uh, American Kingpin on the Silk Road Drug Empire and and I mean the 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 cops and the FBI agents—they're all they're all really nice guys, but they uh, I you know they all hated each other. There was people no one wanted to talk to each other. It's kind of almost impossible that there could be some larger—not kind of—it is impossible that there could have been some larger conspiracy theory, um, conspiracy going on with that case. Do you think like when you look at the RFK tapes, when you look at the JFK? Um, assassination, Martin Luther King, all these different things. Do you think that that back then maybe there was, and this is the thing that Loewenstein started to believe?
2: Well, the thing that that really uh, started Loewenstein on his journey um, was Nixon's enemies list, and Mm -hmm. he was number seven or something, and he he wasn't even a former congressman anymore. And that was, you know, that was a real thing um, that was going Wait, tell, on.
0: Wait, tell, tell us what, uh, for the people out there that, that don't remember the Nixon enemies list, tell us a little bit about that.
2: Sure. Um, it came out, you know, er, during the Watergate. I don't know exactly when it came out, during the hearings maybe, but that there had been a list of people that Nixon wanted to get. And he, you know, it was dubbed the enemies list. And he was using all the sort of things... In his power to make these people's lives miserable with tax audits and different things like that, and Loewenstein was on this list, and I think it it sort of threw him for a loop that, you know, that Nixon even was that concerned with what he the, this former congressman who was basically on a speaking tour going around the country speaking to law students um, that they would that he felt attacked in that way, and it called for him it called into question what the government was was up to,
3: or at least capable and he was of. someone.
2: Right, yeah, and he was someone who had worked for it, and he had someone that. And right, it really, it really, as he says, uh, it really, uh, his cosmology was shook.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with you, Nick, that when you look at these things on the ground and you go through them, you start to see how um, simple, in some ways, and how complicated the personalities are, are who are involved, and. You start to sense motivations that may not spell conspiracy, and as you lift higher in the air and you look at it going back contextually, the things you need to believe happen in a in a grand ex- conspiracy like this become harder and harder to understand when you understand human nature and you understand the institutions that are sort of behind these things. You know, like you, you know, we've 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 sort of been involved with. Law enforcement and DA's offices and stuff like that. And just like everywhere else in the world, there are great people who do their job incredibly well and they're very they're very buttoned up. And there are people who sort of are doing it because it's their job and you're not know, not necessarily as buttoned up. So to believe that all these people could be aligned in some sort of magical way to create a conspiracy that's so mind blowing that one leak of it could bring down an entire government is hard hard to fathom
0: but at the same time you know on the flip side this is where your brain starts to kind of melt a little bit on the flip side of it there are clearly conspiracies that the government has you know has has been involved in you know there's all the things that have come out about the cia where they you know were using magicians during the war to to fake things um assassination attempts you know all these things that they have done uh that that were conspiracies, for want of a better word. Um, and there's also things, you know, I mean, JFK, like, I don't I personally do not believe that it was Lee Harvey Oswald that killed him alone. I just the, it just is mind boggling that 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 would ever be believed. But, you know, maybe maybe I'm completely wrong.
2: This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: I have a question for you, dear listeners. Are you struggling to get some sleep at night? I know I am. I lay awake most nights thinking about all the crazy news. It also doesn't help if you don't have a very comfortable mattress. But there is help around the corner. The fine people at Mattress Firm are here for you when you are looking for ways to improve your sleep. These are mattress experts here, people. They can also help you build your bed from headboards to adjustable bases to sheets. They even have bedroom decor. They've got you covered literally and figuratively. Plus, if you go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast, you can save 10% with the code podcast10. Once again, that's mattressfirm.com slash podcast where you can save 10% on a new mattress or anything with the code podcast10. Mattress Firm offers a 120-night sleep trial so you can rest assured that you'll love your mattress or your money back. And they offer a 120-night low price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price if you see something cheaper along the way. Once again, if you go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast, you can save 10% with the code podcast10, and there are more than 3,000 stores nationwide, so Mattress Firm is right around the corner if you are looking for a really perfect good night's sleep. With all the stuff that you guys have, all the stories that you've done, all these incredible um, documentaries and narratives and so on, uh, when you look back at them, do you... Has your viewpoint on all of these topics and investigations and conspiracies and things like that have has have they changed over time, or have they been affirmed in one direction or another?
2: Um, <clears throat> I think I don't know that we approach it that way. I, I I mean, obviously, I guess on some level you're always searching for the truth, but I think to be honest with you, you're also trying to tell a, a good story and an entertaining story and. Um, you know, we're, 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 so I, I guess looking back on things, I, I, guess, I also don't look back on things very often. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen that. I couldn't even tell you what's in the jinx at the end of the day and what got cut at the
3: last second. I mean,
2: uh, so it's a difficult, it's a difficult question. I, but I don't, I, I don't look back and I go, oh, I have a different perspective on the whole thing now.
3: Yeah. I try not to also get too, um, intellectual about these things because, ultimate ultimately you know if you overintellectualize these events it's hard to see them clearly you know so i think for us the fun is actually telling the story in a beat by beat through a chronology sort of way and revealing to the audience truths not necessarily a whole truth but a series of truths that people probably aren't looking at because they're so blinded by the intellectuality of the anal- analysis of it and the fog of, you know, context and commentary. So stripping all that away and just going into this these tapes and telling the story through the tapes and letting the audience decide kind of where they fall is the fun of it for us. So getting too much left or right or up and down and too much involved in, in you know, in in theories and telling people what to think and telling people what to think i think it ruins it
0: yeah no i just i'm, I'm more curious if your thought process has changed i mean are, have over we built bunkers
3: in our backyards is that what you Have
0: want? you built bu- have you have you built bunkers and do you wear silver foil hats uh, <laughs> when you're when you're visiting cia offices well you have to because if you don't wear the hat
2: if you don't wear the hat they can read your mind so of course we wear the hats <laughs> uh, <laughs> How do you think I knew how you'd answer these questions today?
0: <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so okay, so let's let's get back to the to the actual story, and then I have a lot of questions for you about the reporting process and the tapes and things like that. But um, one of the things that I find really fascinating about this specific story is it doesn't seem to have gotten the same amount of attention that JFK got. Uh, is that because for many years people just – I mean part of it, of course, is JFK was the president. But still, this was a – if this happened today if an assassination of a – you know, someone running for president, it would, would it take place? It would shake, it would shake the world uh, and it would be all we would be talking about for a very long period of time, whether or not we knew who did it or who didn't do it or if there was a conspiracy – of course, there would be a conspiracy because of the world we live in today with social media. But but it seems like this did not get a lot of attention. Is that just because I wasn't alive then or around then or old enough to read the newspaper? Or is it because it was kind of believed to be an open and shut case for for such a
2: long time um, and then people started to kind of look at it? I think uh, it's a couple of things. I think it's also in something that you mentioned earlier and that this was one of a string of events in a really um, – difficult time for the country and so th- there's all these things happening that sort of uh, tell a larger story i mean you know the chicago con- convention that that democratic convention a few months after this was also incredibly violent and divided and you know so and obviously we we were talking about martin luther king's death and so i think bobby kennedy's assassination becomes kind of a part of that story a little bit more it gets grouped together into you know Nixon's election and then Watergate and then it's it's like there's all these other events around it that are also very important and yeah there there isn't a lot of slowed down storytelling as Mark was saying like going beat by beat through this this time and this and this case
3: yeah there's something else that happened right they did record everything but they locked it away you know there was a definite attempt to keep these tapes under wraps for a long period of time. And I think that there's, you know, just like everything else, people sort of, their interest wane, they're not looking at it. There's a couple people like Bill Klaber who, who you know, who went back and every time a tape was released, he would listen to it and he would analyze it. Um, and, you know, for the most of us, it just passed. It just went by. And, um, and Sirhan was caught with a gun five feet from Kennedy. So, you know, it, it felt open and shut. But uh, when those tapes started to come out and people started listening to the witness testimony and all the other stuff, they started looking into it.
0: So tell us about those tapes. So they were recorded, how many hours
2: were there? Oh, I I mean, there's hundreds of tapes.
3: Yeah. So I uh,
2: I haven't even, we don't, yeah, we haven't even calculated that because it would be so, I would have a panic attack right here if if I knew (laughs) how how much footage (laughs) there was. (laughs) (laughs) but there's a lot Um, there's a a lot don't
0: worry no no one can see your panic attack (laughs) Um, the beauty of podcasts uh and and why did they lock them away and how did you get access to the stuff that has not been heard before
2: why they locked it away is a question i i don't totally know i think it, it must have had to do with the a lot of what was happening which was like we need to simplify this we need to make sure that this doesn't become a conspiracy and so maybe the best way to do that is to lock these tapes away um, <laughs> and for 20 years a lot of people fought really hard to get them released and eventually in 1988 20 years later they were all moved to the California State Archives and open to the public how we got and, built uh, yep Bill had a lot of the tapes, um, but we are also we spent a lot of time corresponding with Beth, the librarian at the California State Archives, who's amazing, who's who who copies a lot of these tapes for us.
3: Yeah, I mean the the job, in all these things, is to actually listen to them, and th- that's a huge job. And there's very few people oh, who yeah. has have the time and you know patience to listen to them. You know, and plus Bill Klaber, it, he this has been his his sort of opus, right? So he. He's been interviewing people all along the way since since you know soon after the the assassination. So he has tapes of his own with people that have now passed away, but he he dug into these events with them.
0: What is your process? Do you do you do you you know divide and conquer? Do you get transcripts made of the tapes and then, you know, figure out how to cut it all up and make it into this narrative? How do you guys approach these things because this is, you know, of course you've been doing this for quite a while now, in Crime Town, and it was very similar in its style of of taking these interviews and and public you know commentary and kind of piecing it together in this beautiful narrative. How do you guys approach it?
3: I think the first thing we do is we look at the story holistically. We try to we try to see the landmarks in the story um, and. Everything's built sort of from the very beginning on a chronology. We don't break chronology until we get into the creative aspects of how to tell the story better for the audience. What we try to do is understand the the landmarks and how we move from one landmark to the next. So if it's a crime story, there's a crime, there's a trial, there may be appeals. You know, with Bob Durst, there were multiple, multiple landmarks in that story. There were three murders. Um, with this, there's, there are landmarks in the story. There's, you know, there's the girl with the polka dot dress, there's the, the guns, there's this, there's that, there was a trial. Um, so that's the first step. And thank God for podcasting, because there's a lot of young people who are willing to sit down and listen to these tapes. And I don't personally listen to the tapes. I know Zach listens to a lot of the tapes. Um, and, um, and, you know, they, they listen to it and we talk about it and they pull things from the tapes that relate to these landmarks. And we start to sort of find a path from one spot to the next to the next. And then we start thinking about how the story can be presented to an audience. And the
0: reason, and when, when, if you, you know, you have the, you've, you've both done television, uh, before, what's different in the storytelling, uh, when you're doing it
2: visually versus doing it on a podcast? Um, There's a few things. I think, I think on the one, on the one hand, like it was really uh, exciting when we got into podcasts because it felt so much easier than lugging lights and a camera around to just be Mark and I go up to Providence and and record on a little, you know, zoom recorder. Um, And, so that that's an exciting uh, difference. Um, when we're putting these things together, when you have the uh, when you have visuals, you can do a lot more things. You can move through time quicker. You can have more characters. I think we were very struck. Our early Crime Town assemblies were <laughs> challenged um, and not as simple. And I think with a podcast. And with audio storytelling, you have to draw a, sim- a simpler line through it because people don't have the visuals to rely on. You know, if you, if you see a movie and somebody's walking down the street and you look down at your phone for a second and then you look up and the guy's in a bar. You go, oh, OK, so we mm-hmm. must have gotten into the bar. I'm, I'm, just, I'm not lost. But if, if that happens with a podcast, like the train, you have no idea where you are and it's very frustrating. You might as well turn it off.
3: Yeah, there's another thing about television and and movies. It's and particularly in documentary and starting with Errol Morris, there's this there's this visual storytelling that's going on, you know, uh, regardless of whether you're doing a recreation, um, you know, of the crime or you're of the of a moment in the in the in the trial or whatever, you're sending messages to the audience visually. So there's another track to uh, to sort of evolve as a piece of storytelling, and you don't have that with podcasts. So Ultimately, you know, the podcast is, is got something else. It's much more intimate and you feel very, very close to it. You know, it's in your ear and, um, and that has a different type of value. It's a very different thing for me because I shoot stuff, you know. So for me, I'm always, when we're making television or something, I'm trying to think of how are we going to tell this story visually, you know, because we can help the storytelling with visuals. In this, the intimacy is the power in some ways.
0: Hmm. One of the things I find really fascinating lately is that we, you know, I I watched the documentary *Wild Wild Country* and couldn't stop watching. I listened to *Crime Town*. I, you know, serial. Um, it there are, you know, narrative nonfiction crime books, but uh, in a lot of these instances. Um, you know, Wild Wild Country, for example, the footage was sitting around. It was 300 hours of footage that had been there for a long time. With the RFK, AK, RFK tapes, same thing. Why do you think we're do you think we're in this period now where people want this real stuff because they're kind of sick of all the fake social media stuff, or is it just that we now have the technologies to be able to kind of pull these things together better and tell different stories? Or what is it that you think has given rise to such an interest in? these true crime narratives, um, especially the the stuff that you guys spent so much time on?
3: Yeah, well, certainly technology had a big part of it, right? I mean, we, you know, Andrew and I made Capturing the Freedmans, which is largely home movies. And we recognized in that the power of the home movie. And uh, that is a piece of technology. They were shooting with Super 8, and then later, you know, David got a VHS camera. And all of a sudden there's this whole thing available that we didn't know before, like the, the taping of these interviews is a little older technology, but you know, they didn't tape interviews you know, in the 40s and 50s. You know? So now you have people taping interviews. Wild Country, obviously, there's somebody running around with a VHS camera, and these materials are out there. So I think it was only a matter of time before storytellers recognized the value of those materials and started using them to tell stories.
0: And do you think that, um, you know, when you look forward at the, the, the next few things you're going to do, what, what are some, some examples of, uh, um, of new kinds of uh, narratives and stories that you guys are looking at? Or are you just focused on the RFK tapes right now and, and haven't picked your next project?
2: We have another season of Crime Town um, coming in the fall. So we're working, on, we're working hard on that. And that will run through uh, next year. And yeah. then Mark's working on a TV show.
3: Yeah, I'm working on a TV show. <laughs> Another TV what's, show. It's a. What's the TV show? Uh, you know, I I probably shouldn't share overshare on uh, that right now. Sorry, okay. Nick. I, I I I want to, but it's it's very early, and um, don't worry, no one's listening. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's um, just like I'm trying to I'm trying to just figure it out myself for right now. So yep. yeah, yeah, totally totally understand that that world.
0: If you could pick. A dream crime story to do uh, uh, let's just say like the f- pretend that the footage is hidden away somewhere and we never knew it was there, and you kind of found it in a vault that you accidentally opened. What would be the dream 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 story for either of you guys
2: <laughs> Wow that's like a that's, a that's a good question.
3: Can we get those watergate tapes from the very beginning to the <laughs> end? I think they're probably available now. we just need those eighteen but, minutes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's so hard to imagine well, what kind of tapes might be out there in the world. You
3: know? Yeah, I mean, Wow, I, I, Wow Country is a really good example of when I, w- when I was watching it, I, I thought to myself, are those recreations? They're so well done. But oh, that yeah, quality, I, I had
0: a few moments like that.
3: Yeah, I mean, the quality of the tape, the quality of the I don't know if the story, it's intimacy, right? I mean, those tapes. Give you an inside look into a, something that I've never seen before, and then you get to meet those people now, and they get to talk about it. It's it's kind of fantastic,
2: and also visually with the maroon colors, it was such a visual thing. <laughs> it was art directing. Wild, Priced. and when when they when they cut to the with the guns, you're just I mean I I hit the I hit the floor. I can't
0: yeah. believe it. No, that I, that scene with the guns was like what the. Yeah. So I don't
3: know if it's about, you know, which of these stories in the world would be great. It's like, what footage is out there? And you can't predict. I mean, there's no predicting it, right? What footage is out there that could create a great story, you know, and and then the intimacy of that footage and how emotional it is. And unfortunately, when you
2: start the stories, you never really know what you're going to find. I mean, we've had so many experiences of trying to tell a story. Uh, Crime Town, for example, when we found the grand jury testimony of Buddy uh, uh, after he had been caught kidnapping a man in his living room. And and we we discovered, you know, 13 hours of grand jury uh, testimony. I mean, we we never knew we were going to find that. But when we found it, it was like, oh, this has got to be an episode.
3: Yeah. I will say one thing. Um, we, After the jinx, we made a conscientious, a conscientious effort to avoid another murder story. Not that I have anything against murder stories, but there was a just a rash of murder stories. Um, and I remember getting multiple calls about show running JonBenet Ramsey television shows. I think there were four of them at the end of the day. And I thought to myself, you know, this whole... Thing that we are working on that we're, which is our our wheelhouse, is applicable to things that are much broader than just whether somebody killed somebody or not. And I thought, let's go do Crime Town, you know, because ultimately crimes are as interesting, no matter how broad they become, if it's corruption or if it's conspiracies. That's more interesting to me right now than simple murder stories. Not to say. That if the tape came in, <laughs> and it was a really interesting story, we wouldn't we wouldn't get excited about it.
0: What was in the process of doing the RFK tapes? What was your, your both of your kind of holy shit moment? The thing you listened to, the thing you discovered, where you were like, "Oh my god, that's insane."
3: Rosicrucians. For me, that was Rosicrucians.
0: Could, uh, tell us about that.
3: Well, you know. um like a lot of people who are isolated, Sirhan Sirhan had become very isolated. He'd come over from the Middle East and he didn't fit in. And a lot, like like Oswald, he had sort of turned against um, what everybody else was doing in a very, very clear way. Oswald turned to communism, but Sirhan, he turned to the Rosicrucians, which is a, uh, a, a cult-like, I don't know, I'm going to get in trouble, but is a group of people who practice a lot of cult-like things like self-hypnosis. So when we were going through the tapes and he starts talking about Rosicrucians, there's another alternative to some sort of huge conspiracy and hypnoprogramming, which is he hypnotized himself. and uh, And that sounds really far out, but when you listen to him talk about it, you start to realize, oh my God, this guy might have been able to do that. He was very dedicated to it. And um, and it's you know then you listen to the Rosicrucian recordings and you realize that's a big deal for them is this sort of self awareness through hypnosis. Um, I don't think they were thinking, oh well, we should get people to run out and kill other people. But I think they were like they were exploring this area, and he was on board for it. And so as he became more and more isolated, he sort of fell into his own mind to a large extent. And so it, it sort of paints a very clear path to me towards, you know, RFK.
0: What's interesting is when you look at the, today, um, RFK's children um, actually don't believe that Sirhan Sirhan was the sole killer, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, Robert Kennedy Jr. um, has visited Sirhan Sirhan in prison and and said he doesn't believe it and called for a new investigation very recently. And
0: is th- is that would could that happen is there a chance that there could be a new investigation is it too late that we could ever even find out let's just say hypothetically that there was someone else there it, you know is it too late that we could find out who it was or
2: Le- legally uh, sir hans exhausted all of his appeals so i don't know exactly what the legal uh road for that would look like i'm certainly And I don't know enough about California law to see, to to, to know if that's possible. But for all extensive purposes, it seems to be kind of his legal opportunities seem to have come to an end.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, short of somebody stepping forward and saying, I was a second gunman or I was part of this in a convincing way that matched the timeline, that matched all the evidence, that made sense, which, you know, you can triangulate all that stuff. It's all available. It would be hard to... I think re examine this. I mean, we're doing a a yeoman's job. We've slowed it down really, really slow, and still there are gray areas that are hard to explain. And that's part of a conspiracy. (laughs) That's you know, you need a couple ingredients, and that's that's a big one. That you know, you can't assume that you're gonna know everything about a person's state of mind or what happened with the bullets exactly, because bullets can do funny things. They sometimes don't go straight. You know? So we can only know up until what we don't know. And then we got to pull the camera back after we tell the whole story in the podcast and ask ourselves what we really believe.
0: Which I can't wait to to, to see at the end what you do really believe. When you, um, just a few more questions before we, we wrap up here, I, I want to get back to, to Kennedy. And I, I keep thinking about, you know, after Kennedy gets shot, you know, Nixon rises to power and... And for all intensive purposes purposes changes America forever more so than I think most presidents ever have um and will always be remembered as you know for his the the lists and the all the nefarious things he did and um uh and being impeached and so on and and do you do you guys think about the alternative future that could have existed had kennedy you know gone on and become president,
3: yeah? Of course. I mean, what? you wonder if we would be where we are today um, or whether the issues of race that are sort of bubbling up in our society today would not have been more dealt with in a clear and, um, and beneficial way for everyone. Um, he was, you know, he brought people together in a big way, you know, and uh, if we had had a president who was less divisive and a president who was more... Willing to look at everything, make decisions, remake decisions if he thinks it's wrong, uh, to accept everybody as American who is American, no matter what color they are or what race they are, uh, we w- we might be in a very different place.
0: It seems that RFK was um, was one of those rare humble politicians. You know, grew up in essentially royalty, um, and and by the you know. When you see the videos of him on the campaign, uh, you know the, the the audio clip that you you play in the podcast when Martin Luther King is is killed, uh, where he says, you know, you know, I understand to the African American people in the audience that you that you want to feel hatred towards white people, but that's not the way forward. It, it seemed like he really understood uh, in a way that I've never really heard a politician of that power that much you know that much height he understood uh, race in America and it and and it really does feel like had he been had he stayed alive had he gone on to become president that we may not have the issues that we do have today
3: yeah and class he toured the poverty-stricken areas of America he understood class he he recognized he had he was privileged he had the he had the self-reflexive transparency that you would want in a leader you know, ultimately, he went through the juggernaut, right? He was he was sitting beside Eugene McCarthy, red-baiting at one point. Um, is that not right? It's not Eugene. It's, it's not Eugene? Joe. Joe, sorry. Joe McCarthy. Oops. Can I do that Joe again? McCarthy. Take two. You, <laughs> you want to do you wanna yeah, d- I'm going to retake the that. Voice? Eugene was the Democratic. <laughs> I it. Yeah. Okay, so uh, he was sitting beside Joe McCarthy in the red-baiting era, and he was... A very tough attorney general in some ways, but then his brother was murdered, and he saw that the country was pulling itself apart and I think he had a, a moment of clarity
0: but then why did we why did we choose Nixon after all this? I mean, if the country was pulling what is it was it like okay well this guy can can pull it apart further <laughs> i mean it's like it's like choosing Trump today, right
2: well, yeah. it was a little complicated because you know after Senator Kennedy was killed then um the Demo- you know, Humphrey emerges as the nominee, who was the vice president at the time, and he didn't really unite the Democrats. I think that's something that we, we we can understand. Uh he was not an exciting candidate, especially when compared to somebody like Robert Kennedy. Um and Nixon Nixon won.
3: Yeah. And also I think that our fallback position as a society is towards conservative thought and conservative practices when we're in a in a crisis situation, you know, uh, or at least a perceived crisis situation. You know, the, our society on a whole is it's shifting. You know, our demographics are shifting, our economy is shifting, the way people go to work, deal with work. A lot of things are shifting, and some people are feeling left behind. Some people are striving forward, and we're going through change. And there's always going to be an undertow of conservatism when change takes place. That's my personal opinion.
0: Hmm. Um, All right. Well, this has been truly fascinating. I cannot wait to hear the rest of this uh, audio series. Um, I I literally snuck out of my house this morning uh, and uh, took a very, very long walk to continue listening. So I'm very excited to see how it all comes together. Thank you both for taking the time to chat today. This has been really fascinating. Can you tell people where they can find all this fascinating stuff and, and what to expect next?
2: Sure. The RFK Tapes is available wherever you get your
3: podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> and mind control. <laughs> mind, mind control, control this next. week. Yeah, mind control. But try mind to start control, at the beginning. What? You know, try to start at is the there,
0: beginning. Is there a chance that I might be mind controlled to go do something I don't want to do but after listening to it? or
3: I think N- it, No. I think you'll be asking <laughs> questions about, you know, what the human mind is capable of. Fascinating.
0: Well, I really appreciate it, and uh, I urge everyone to go, to go and give this a listen.
2: Thanks. Thanks, Thanks so much for having us.
0: Before we get to the closing of this episode, I just wanted to say one last thing about Robert Kennedy. The hotel where he was assassinated has long since gone from the skylines of Los Angeles, and its place is a school and an RFK memorial bearing Kennedy's words which read in part, Few will have the greatness to bend history, but each of us can work to change a small portion of events. Each time a person stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustices, it sends forth a tiny ripple of hope. I thought that was pretty poignant considering where we find ourselves today. Thanks to my guests this week, Abby Tracy, Mark Merling, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any way you get your podcasts. And if you believe in conspiracy theories, maybe you can just take off that silver foil hat and it will be beamed into your brain. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, my editors at Vanity Fair, and thanks, of course, most of all, to my sponsors, Fleur and Mattress Firm. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week.
3: In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away,
0: there's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy
3: is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away for murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And The lawyer was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars.
1: We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella.
2: We gotta show that he's a corrupt cop. They could go f- themselves.
3: I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts.